invite you, if you would, if you've got your Bibles, if you would join me in the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, we're going to be in chapter 8 this morning. We're going to continue on in a sermon series that we've been in for a while as we come now essentially to uh, the highlight, the pinnacle of the book of Mark as we've been working our way ever so carefully through the, the gospel of Mark together. And just so that you're aware, we are kind of building. It's kind of like a uh, one of those, if you've watched a show in, on television, you know you get to the end about this time of the year. And the show inevitably leaves you at this place of a cliffhanger, and they call it the, the fall season finale, and they make you wait until the next year into January or February to pick up the story so that you know what's going on. So just so that you know, that's what I'm doing to you today. We're coming to what is essentially the, 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 one of the high points of, of Mark's gospel, and we will pick back up at this point next year as we move into Advent and others next. But this point is the, thing, is the place where all of Mark has been flowing to up to this point, and from which all of Mark will flow from. And as I was chewing on it this, this week, and I was sitting in my office, I, I got to thinking, you know, we're, folk, we're people who, who desire answers. And we come up with some of the most ridiculous tools and instruments in our lives to get the answers that we want. I remember when I was growing up, maybe you remember it, especially if you're around my age or younger. Do you remember the little paper fortune tellers that you like picked a color, picked a number, and did you fold it, and you'd sit around in class? Will Jenny ask me out? Will Jenny go to prom with me? Well, will, you know, all of these different ridiculous things. And in my office, there's a magic eight ball. And I used it for a sermon illustration at some point. But a couple of weeks ago, my boys came in, and they asked if they could play with it. And I said, sure. And so they're playing with it. Bryant's trying to teach Emerson how this works, that it's got to be yes and no questions. And they're shaking that thing around, asking all kinds of ridiculous questions. And the next thing I hear is, does Daddy have a girlfriend? I said, let me answer that for you. No. I don't care what that thing says. But we don't just ask silly questions. We ask deeper questions in our hearts and in our lives. God has placed, the Bible tells us, a longing for eternity inside of us. And so because God is a good God who has created the world to be ordered, we can look into the world and we can ask questions of the world and we can expect an answer. And God's designed us to, to search for those answers, the deeper meaning questions. The problem comes when we get the answer we don't really want. Or we don't get a question or the answer at all. Then what are we going to do? We might try bending the rules to meet our needs, or we might compromise something that we believe in in some unhealthy way so that we can find some happy medium to find the answer that we really want. We might become discouraged and we might just, you know, just kick it all and walk away. We might get angry and in our anger we might determine that we're going to do whatever it takes by whatever means are at our disposal to recreate our world so that we get the answer that we want. And that's actually what Paul says is the root problem of every human being in existence. In Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, he says it this way, Although they, that's humanity, knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. 
But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's the Bible's picture of us in our sin. In our sin, we don't like God as he has revealed himself to us. And so what we do is we recreate God in an image that's more, uh, more, more acceptable to us, more appealing to our appetites. That is the, the source of idolatry in every single person's life. And Paul says that's the struggle that we all have. But the message of the Bible is that God is infinitely greater than anything that we could ever imagine. And it's not God's, job, God's responsibility to conform to meet our expectations and images. Instead, it's our responsibility to conform to his. Because after all, Genesis tells us we were created in his image. We're told in Scripture that we were created for his glory. So the question again becomes, when God doesn't meet our expectations... When God doesn't fit into the box that we have made for him, what happens? And that's exactly what we see in this encounter in Mark chapter 8, is Mark wants us to see that Jesus is the Christ that we need, even if he isn't the Christ that we want. Look with me in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 down through 33 this morning. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him. John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we come before you now and we pray that your name would be glorified in this place that your word would be honored, and that, Holy Spirit, you would fill our hearts and our minds, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to feel in this moment, that we would respond as you would have us to respond in obedience and repentance and confession and in faith, and that in everything, Lord Jesus, you would be glorified and magnified and lifted high. And it's in your name that I pray. Amen. As we pick up in these verses, Jesus is continuing with his disciples to attempt to withdraw. We've seen up to this point that he's had some conflict with the Pharisees. He and his disciples have at multiple occasions attempted to get away so that they could rest and so that they could teach. And so Jesus is continuing to withdraw. And he withdraws now to the point that he is at this place called Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was a, a city that was dedicated to Caesar... And it was named for the one who, uh, the Herod the Great's son, Philip, who had, had worked on this city, and he had dedicated it to Caesar. And this was a place that sits at one of the three sources of the Jordan River. And the Jordan River is the life source of the entire region of, of Galilee and Israel. Because the Jordan River is there, Israel is able to be this breadbasket for essentially much of the Middle East and much of the world. 
And so here at this source of life, Philip and Herod had built this temple to the Greek god Pan as a thank you to the Romans for allowing them to build this city. And so here is this center of of essentially life and the center of pagan worship, and it's also about as far north as Jesus could possibly go and still be in ancient Israel. If you've heard from the the Old Testament, if you're familiar with it, they would talk about, about Israel being from Dan to Beersheba. And Caesarea Philippi is up north, really close to Dan. Jesus has withdrawn literally as far as he possibly can north and away from Jerusalem so that he can get with his disciples. And on the way, he begins to ask them, who do people say that I am? That's a question that has been asked repeatedly at this point through Mark. But it's the first time that Jesus poses that question. From the very beginning, Mark introduces us that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But from that point, Jesus comes onto the scene, and as we, as we even though we as the audience, because Mark has tipped us to it, the people within the story don't understand who this man is. He comes on the scene, and as we've seen, he begins to do these miraculous things. And he begins to teach with authority and with power. And they ask the question, what is this, a new teaching? And as Mark continues on over the first seven and a half chapters, what we see is that that question of what is this turns into who is this? And everybody's pondering, who is this man? Who is this one who wields the authority and wields power over death and over demons and over disease and has the ability to speak to nature itself and nature immediately obeys? Who is the one who yields so much power? Who is this one who has the audacity to to do things that fly in the face of Jewish tradition and then claim himself to be actually adhering to the true law of God? Who is this one who has the ability to touch what is supposed to be unclean and and remain completely clean? He has the ability to come into contact with dead bodies and lepers and women with with bleeding conditions, and yet their uncleanness isn't contagious to Jesus, but instead his holiness is what is contagious to them. And their lives are transformed. And we finally come to that place where the disciples in Mark chapter 5, as Jesus is calming the storm, the disciples, as they're there on the boat and they're terrified for their lives, they call out to him, "'Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing?' And Jesus stands up and he rebukes the wind and the waves and they all sit down. And the response from the disciples is their fear transitions from outside the boat to inside the boat. Because the thing that was going to kill them is overpowered by the man standing in front of them. And they ask that question, who then is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. And that mystery of who is this? who is this, continues to show up again and again until we come to this place of revelation in Mark chapter 8. Jesus invites the questions so that he might then teach on the answer. And so he invites them to give to him the opinion of the crowds, and they believe Jesus to be either John the Baptist reincarnated, which we know is ridiculous, 
because anybody that's followed the story and those who knew them knew that Jesus and John the Baptist were right there together. John baptized him in the Jordan. And yet Herod the Great and several others were convinced that Jesus was John the Baptist reincarnated. Somehow the spirit of John the Baptist had, had, had in, invaded this person, Jesus Christ, and empowered him with so much miracle-working power. They believed that he was Elijah. If you remember Elijah in the Old Testament, he was raptured up into heaven, for lack of a better term, where he was brought bodily into the kingdom, and the Israelites were anticipating the day that Elijah would come back. Because the arrival of Elijah was going to be the sign that God was bringing all of his promises to fruition. So they think that maybe he's Elijah, or they just think he's one of the prophets. Now, they're not being disrespectful by any means in any of these things. But every single one of these images falls radically short of Jesus' true identity. Their attempts at making sense of Jesus. And they're attempting to make sense of Jesus with the paradigms, the pictures that they are comfortable with. But what we realize is that Jesus doesn't fit into any of their paradigms or into any of our paradigms. He is a creature, not even a creature. He is someone and something that is in a box that is entirely his own. He's not just another prophet. He's not just another priest. He's not just another king. He's the prototype for every single one of them. He is the prophet, the priest, the king. And the crowds have failed Jesus' test by falling short of understanding his identity and his glory. But what about these twelve? The ones that he drew out of the crowd, named apostles, his messengers, had sent them out to speak on his behalf, and who he has already said has been given the mysteries of the kingdom. Are they going to get it? So Jesus takes a step deeper, not just who do they say that I am, who do you say that I am? And that's what prompts Peter's declaration. As Peter steps up to be the vocal representative of the disciples, and Peter declares that Jesus is the Christ. To this point, as we've said, this identity of Jesus has been semi-secret. Mark has told us who Jesus is, because in the very first verse he says that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God himself has said who Jesus is because at Jesus' baptism, when he comes out of the waters, a voice from heaven comes down and says, this is my beloved son. And even the demons have testified to Jesus' true identity. But to this point, there's not been a single human who's gotten it. Until now, when Peter, prompted by the Holy Spirit, as Jesus reveals in Matthew's account, prompted by the Holy Spirit, declares and speaks this truth. That Jesus is so much bigger than what the crowd thinks he is. See, Peter has seen and participated in too much to think that Jesus is just one of these old paradigms. He is not new wine poured into old wineskin. He's an entirely new wineskin altogether. And so he steps out on faith, defying the opinions of the crowds that underestimated him, defying the king who misunderstood him, defying the religious leaders who rejected Jesus Christ, and he speaks truth in faith. Which led me to ask the question of myself and the question that I'd ask of you today, do you have that same courage to be willing to defy 
the crowds to speak the truth. To defy kings to speak the truth. To defy the religious leaders to speak the truth. Peter steps out and is bold. And he's not just speaking for himself, he's speaking for these 12, and I believe that really he stands in as the representative for the rest of us too, to speak and declare Jesus' identity in this moment. And we're going to see in just a few minutes that he doesn't have it all figured out, but what we see from Peter's example is he's willing to step out in faith on what little he does understand. And by stepping out on that one little truth, I may not get it all yet, but I believe that you are the Christ, Peter steps onto solid ground. Are we willing to step out in faith on what we know and understand, or will we allow ourselves to be held back in fear by all of the things that we don't? There are a lot of people who are afraid to step out and speak and live their lives for Jesus and engage someone else with the gospel of Jesus Christ because I'm afraid of what I don't know. What are they going to ask me that I'm not going to be able to answer? And we live in this place of fear instead of stepping out in faith. And so Peter, though he doesn't always get it right, Peter's a great example for us of, of being bold being willing to step out and make the mistake. Being bold and stepping out and being willing to, to take the rebuke and the response and grow from it. We learn more from our failures oftentimes than we do from our successes, but so often we're terrified of failing, so afraid of failing, we never try to begin with. So Peter's example urges us to step out in faith on what it is that we believe. And Peter steps out in faith to declare that Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus' response is a little off-putting. Because what the ESV translates as Jesus strictly charged them is actually the same word that's used twice more in the passage of Scripture that we're looking at. Jesus rebuked him. It's the same command that Jesus used, the same tone that Jesus used when the demons started declaring him to be the Son of God. And Peter speaks the truth, you're the Christ, and Jesus immediately rebukes Peter and the disciples and charges them not to make that known. And that's shocking for us. But he does it for a reason. And the reason was because of that understanding of the Christ. It's easy to misunderstand God. It's easy to misread Scripture. Just this past week, I had a sister share with me a video on YouTube of this mom who's videotaping her little girl. And her little girl says, the mom asks the little girl, what's God's name? And the little girl says, Howard. And she said, really? She said, yeah. His name's Howard. Yeah, his name's Howard. How do you know that his name's Howard? And this little, she's got to be maybe 18 months, two years. She's not three years old. She says, because when we go to church, we pray, our Father in heaven, Howard be your name. And we can laugh about this little girl, but I'm be shocked if there's many of us, because I know for a long time in my life, I didn't understand that Christ wasn't Jesus' last name. That Christ is something entirely different. That Christ is a title. And it comes from the, the Old Testament word for Messiah, which literally just means anointed one. 
And it was a, a term that was used for prophets and for priests and for kings, those who had been anointed with oil and set apart for the purposes of God. It was a common term for all of those people that were used as instruments by God for his glory and for the good of the nation of Israel. Until we get near to the end of the Old Testament. And there the prophets begin to speak not just about this general anointing, but of one specific anointed one called the Messiah. Who would come and who would be king, who would be rescuer, who would be redeemer, who would eliminate all of the enemies of the people of God. And so at this point in history where Jesus is having this conversation with the disciples, the term the Christ referred to someone who had been long anticipated by Israel. And centuries of teaching and anticipating and postulating who this person was going to be had led to a highly politicized and warped understanding of who the Messiah was supposed to be. Men had risen up and claimed to be the Messiah over and over again throughout the history of Israel. And they had raised armies to go after the Greeks and go after the Romans. Jesus is later on in Mark going to warn us that there are going to be other people after him who are going to stand up and claim to be the Christ. And we've seen them. And we've seen them rise and we've seen them fall. But because of that highly politicized, militarized understanding of who the Christ was supposed to be, it was dangerous to be identified as the Christ. And we'll see that to be true because that's exactly what the Jewish rulers use to convince the Romans to kill him in the end. You don't kill him, you're no friend of Caesar because he claims to be our king. And so it was dangerous. And it's this gross misunderstanding of what the Messiah is supposed to be that Jesus doesn't want to be associated with, and so he requires them to stay quiet. He doesn't reject it. He just tells them, don't tell anybody. And it's because of that, because Jesus has a bigger understanding of who the, the, what the mission of the Messiah is supposed to be, who the Messiah is supposed to be, that he wants the opportunity to shape that in the disciples' life and in others. So Jesus begins to share his understanding of the mission of the Messiah. And that's what leads to Peter's disagreement with Jesus. And Peter steps forward again, and he takes that little bit of success a little bit too far, and he steps a little bit further out than he needs to, and he actually disagrees with Jesus about the mission of the Christ. More than that, he has the, the audacity to pull Jesus Christ aside and scold him. They're walking along the way, and it is the common practice of the disciples of a teacher to follow behind him as a, a symbol, if you will, an enacted uh, illustration of their position, that they are following his teachings. And we get the picture here that, that Peter's broken rank, and not only has he just skipped the line, he's jumped in front of the line leader himself, which is Jesus Christ. The first half of this book asks, who is this man? And the answer is now the king. The second half of the book asks what the king has come to do, and the answer is the answer that Peter didn't like. He's come to die. And that's the source of Peter's disagreement with him. This king that Peter has gotten, this king that Peter sees in front of him is a suffering king. And that doesn't fit inside Peter's box. And so he jumps out in front of Jesus and rebukes him. I can imagine the conversation being something like, come on, man. 
You can't talk like that. What do you think that you're doing? If you keep talking like that, you're going to scare all these people off. You're going to drive away all these people that are ready and willing to support you. And we're willing to support you. We're willing to fight with you. We're willing to die with you. We're willing to die for you. But this notion that you are going to die and come back to life, people are going to think you're crazy. Peter isn't out on a limb by himself. Jesus turns around and he looks and he sees the disciples. And again, I don't think Peter is out on a limb by himself. He is speaking as the representative of the rest of the group. I can imagine they're all sitting there with their, with their jaws on the floor and their tongues hanging out going, we don't get this. Eyes bug-eyed like they just got slapped in the face with a brick. What are you talking about? All of this? After everything that we've seen, all of the power that you have in the, in the world, and you are going to be rejected and you're going to suffer and you're going to die, and then what's this business about you coming back to life? Peter's not the only one who's done this throughout the centuries. You and I do it. Again and again, each and every day, when we determine that we know better what to do with our lives than God does. When we have the audacity to step in front of God, and instead of, as Paul condemns us with, instead of accepting God as he has revealed himself, we don't like what God has done. We don't like God's answer. We don't like that we don't get an answer. And so instead of yielding to God, we recreate God a little bit in our lives and in our hearts and in our minds. We hear it all the time. My God would never fill in the blank. My God would, would never ask me to forgive that person. My God would never want me to go to those people. My God would never want me to quit that job in that relationship, give up that habit. My God would never fill in the blank. And you're right, your God may not, but the God does, oftentimes. And where and when we are brash enough to speak that in our hearts, whether we speak it out loud or not, doesn't really matter. In that moment, what we are doing is we're rejecting God. Because we think we know better. Ladies and gentlemen, salvation comes in an instant. But sanctification lasts a lifetime. Peter steps out in that instant, and as I said, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew reveals that Peter's understanding of who Jesus Christ is isn't because he's figured it out, because he's somehow more intelligent or gifted or anything else than you or me. It's because the Holy Spirit had enough grace to speak it into his heart in the first place, breathe life into a dead soul, and bring him to life, and he sees it, but only just a little bit. Just like that blind man that we studied last week in the verses before this, the blind man in Bethsaida that Jesus does the miracle on, and he asks him, can you see? And he says, only just a little bit. I see people, but they look like trees. That's where Peter is spiritually right now. He gets it just a little bit. But he doesn't get it all the way. Because we are still works in progress. 
as God works with us, and as we recognize those times in our lives when we want to reject God and reject God's will and reject God's plan. We don't like what God has done. We don't like the answers that God has given to us. And instead, what we need to do is instead of standing up in that moment, we can ask God. The Psalms show us that in lamentation and difficult conversations and many other things. But the answer is to humble ourselves before this Almighty God. Repentance and confession and allowing and yielding to him to transform us from the inside out. Peter's brashness to reject Jesus for who he presented himself to be results in Jesus disciplining Peter. The third time that we see the word rebuke in this passage of Scripture is when Jesus rebukes Peter. And he's disciplined by this Christ that he can't understand and that he is is at the place of hesitation and temptation where he's wanting to turn it all away. And Jesus sees this and he responds immediately because he knows that he's got to nip this in the bud right now. Because I think that he can see the fear in his disciples and in others. And he's reminded in that moment of another encounter. An encounter that Mark doesn't give us a lot of insight into. But other gospel writers do give us greater detail. When Jesus was driven by the Holy Spirit at the beginning of his ministry out into the wilderness and he was tempted by Satan. And we find in that place in Matthew that Jesus' temptation, what Satan came to him with, was an attempt to give Jesus all of the things that were promised to him as the Messiah and as the King. The adoration of men. The nations of the world but to do it without the cross. That was Satan's temptation of Jesus. Instead of waiting to receive what God has apportioned for him, to instead reach out and take it for himself. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden didn't like the answer that God had given because they gave way to the temptation of the enemy and reached out and took what was not theirs to take. And Jesus hears in Peter's words that exact same temptation, the whisper of that voice behind him that says, you can have all of this, just do it without dying. Do it without suffering. We're with you. We'll do whatever it takes. Just don't go to the cross. And Jesus hears that voice and he rejects that voice and does figuratively what Adam should have done in the garden. He crushes the head of the serpent right there. I won't listen to that. Get behind me, Satan, because your mind is not on God's will, but on your will. Because you see, as Jesus comes, Jesus doesn't say simply that he would suffer. He said he must suffer. Messiah, the Christ, must suffer these things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. It was a must for Jesus Christ. That was the mission and the purpose of the Christ. Not to come and conquer, but instead to be conquered to yield his life. Though none could take it from him, he chose to lay it down. Though he didn't deserve to die because there was no unrighteousness or sin in him whatsoever, nevertheless, because of his love for us and his call and his mission to save us from our sins, he did it by willingly laying down his life in your place and in mine to suffer what we deserve, 
He became sin that we might be made his righteousness. Suffering is the way of Christ. If that's the way of Christ, then suffering must be the way of those who call themselves little Christs or Christians. But unfortunately, I believe that so much of our time is spent fearful of and running away from suffering, we don't understand the role that suffering plays in our lives and in the lives of others. We never want to be looked upon with pity, and so when we have people show up to serve us, we feel like we are somehow obligated to respond by paying them or giving them or something because we don't want to be served. But Jesus came to suffer, and I don't really blame us. I don't want to suffer either. I don't want to be dragged through the streets, or, or I don't want my, my wife to live under the threat that because I'm a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ that she might be raped at any moment like women around the world are. I don't want that any more than you do. I don't like sitting with people in the midst of their suffering. So often I'm like those bad friends of Job that are really good for seven days when they keep their mouth shut and then they have the audacity to decide that they know what's right and open their mouths instead of just sitting with somebody and suffering. But we're so averse to suffering in our lives we cannot find the opportunity to minister into the suffering of other human beings, to roll up our sleeves and like Jesus Christ enter into the mess and love them. Be the hands and feet of Jesus to give grace and to speak love and to speak mercy. Jesus chose the path of suffering not for suffering's sake, but for something so much bigger and so much better. We can't be afraid of suffering. While we live in this broken and fallen and sin-stained world, the reality is we're going to suffer. The question is, what are we going to do when we suffer? Because Jesus chose to suffer for our good. Can we suffer for the good of others? Can we suffer for the glory of God? So Jesus rebukes Peter for his selfishness and his misunderstanding of the purposes of God. And in that is our final challenge and the question that I would ask each and every one of you today, how are you like Peter this morning? How are you like Peter in, in a good way? How can you be like Peter so that you can take some time and in prayer you can say, okay, God, what are the things I know? What are the things that are true? What are those anchors of faith that regardless of whether or not I understand the rest of the big picture, God, I can step out on faith on this truth. And I'm going to do so with boldness. Regardless of what the world has to say. Regardless of what those in power have to say, I'm going to trust in your truth and stand for your truth. Maybe you're here this morning and you have allowed all of the I don't knows or I don't likes stand in your way for so long that what God is calling you right now is just to hear his still, small voice that says, I love you. I died for you. You can have everlasting life. That's the gospel. Now repent and believe and be saved. You don't have to have it all the rest of it figured out. That's what sanctification is for. The question is, can you hear that voice? Acknowledge not just the reality that Jesus is the Savior. It's Jesus, my Savior. Because I'm a sinner. And I need 
to be saved from my sins. The Bible promises that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the promise of Scripture. So I invite you, cry out to the Lord for salvation today. But maybe you're here and you're standing in Jesus' way because you're distracted by the things of this world, the things of this life, your material possessions, the attempt to, to ensure that whatever comes, you won't have to suffer. And your eyes are on the here and the now. And that's leading you to a lack of faith. That's leading, leading you to an obstinance. That's leading you to a resistance that is sinful. And the Bible's call to you, Jesus' call to you right here, right now, is repent. Be forgiven. Trust in the Lord. Because he is good. You do that today. Because not only does it say that we'll be saved, but John tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. Will you come to Jesus today? Not as the person that you want to fit into some box, but as the Savior that you need. He doesn't promise you all your wants promises to meet all of your needs. Will you trust him today? I invite you, if you would, to bow your heads and close your eyes and just spend a moment in the presence of the Lord in prayer and ask the Holy Spirit in this moment, how is it that I need to respond? What is there that's in my life that I can turn from in confession and repentance and trust in Jesus Christ today? How can I live in faith in Christ How can I live in trust and submission to him? Take a moment to pray, and I'll come back and close this in a moment.